welcome to Biota Live. I'm Tom Barbelay, and this is recorded live on TalkShoe on August 21st, 2009. Biota Live is a continuation of the Biota Podcasts. For more information on the Biota Podcasts, check out biota.org slash podcast. And for those interested in calling in, the best way to get the call-in details is also via biota.org slash podcast. The next episode on September the 4th at 8pm Pacific, post-singular and post-apocalyptic. This is a topic uh, which has come up because the Singularity Summit is occurring in New York City in October, and I thought uh, September was an ideal month to somewhat debunk, somewhat cover, somewhat analyse, somewhat discuss the singularity movement and whether artificial life developers are post, pre, or just play non-singular. And also with regards to the current economy and I think the relatively abysmal situation that most of us face in terms of uh, employment, uh, those of us that are working seem to be losing working conditions, those of us that aren't working seem to uh, just be losing conditions full stop. So a number of topics associated with that kicking off next Biota Live September the 4th. I'm talking with Mark Bedeau currently about doing a special Biota Live at some time other than the uh, Friday at 8pm Pacific time. Uh, Mark is doing a lot of travelling currently and uh, he would like to be on a Biota Live. He'd like to talk about a number of the issues that have been discussed, particularly associated with the International Society of Artificial Life and also working out ways... Uh, that uh, the International Society can kind of broaden its membership. I think the, uh, the general narrative associated with what's been going on recently is that the artificial life community is quite diverse. It doesn't just exist in academia. It doesn't just exist as hobbyists, a uh, number of different folk, and also those in industry. And really coaxing the folk who are developing artificial life in industry into the broader communication it's going to be one of the primary topics. So if you remember the last time Mark Bedeau was on Biota Live, uh, it's going to be a continuation of that discussion, but primarily focusing on the International Society of Artificial Life and what the International Society uh, will be doing in the future. Obviously, the current financial situation internationally and the effect on uh, software engineers, be they professional software engineers, researchers, uh, students, etc., folks who develop artificial life, either professionally or as a hobby, the conditions are pretty appalling currently. So it's going to be an interesting uh, discussion. I will announce when Mark Bedeau is on specifically. I just see Steve Grand in the chat, so hopefully he'll be calling in in a minute. Um, so I'll announce that through the Biota Conversations mailing list. In order to get to that mailing list, go to the Biota site, click Mailing List, at the top and you'll get to the Biota Conversations and I recommend if you regularly listen to this podcast that you subscribe to the Biota Conversations mailing list because it's a very useful way of getting information and also continuing the discussion from uh, every Biota Live conversation. So I had mentioned in previous Biota Lives that I'd be heading to Northern California in mid-September 
However, unfortunately, I had to cancel that trip. I canceled it for a number of reasons. Uh, Bruce Damer will probably not be in California when I'm there, and obviously I wanted to do some work with Bruce in addition to giving a talk at Greystone Silicon Valley. It's pretty expensive, actually, to get to the Bay Area currently, so I just wanted to kind of, in these times, minimize my travel uh, with the view that when Bruce is definitely going to be in the Bay Area, I would head back and do a, a Greystone Silicon Valley talk. As I mentioned at the start of the show, there is going to be a, a lot of post-singularity or whether we should even engage in the discussion at all related conversation on uh, Biota Lives coming up in the future. But I think the, the narrative associated with the contemporary singularity movement is quite distinct to what we've been discussing in Biota Live to date. And I have the pleasure of unmuting Steve Grant. Hello, Steve. Hey, Tom. How are you doing? Pretty good. Pretty good. So you've come to Bios Live in the news and notes, and I was just discussing the Singularity Summit that's going to be going on in New York in October. What's your <sighs> view with regards to the Singularity Movement? <laughs> Is it a movement? I haven't seen much movement towards the Singularity. It's uh, just all hot air, as far as I can see. <laughs> It's uh, well, I think it's pretty damaging in terms of PR for, for the artificial intelligence movement. That's for sure. Certainly, I think also it's it's pretty damaging for artificial life developers because there's kind of a a, a certain level of astroturf which one needs to overcome, particularly if you know one's doing any kind of development. There's always the compare and contrast, and there's the kind of loud megaphone broadcast system that seems to uh, be attached to the singularity movement. So. I mean, certainly I've had discussions through the community, many of these discussions you've been a part of in some regard, about whether we need to be proactive in terms of our kind of anti towards uh, the singularity. I mean, is this your sense currently? It's very difficult to know what to do for best about it. I mean, if you look at the creationist movement and, and the, um, the backlash against that by, by science, it's not necessarily been a good thing that we've been fighting creationism. I mean, it, it has in general, but it's also kind of given them some um, kudos that they, they otherwise didn't deserve. You know, and I think that that's partly true for the singularity movement as well, that uh, a lot of the stuff that they say is just such sheer nonsense that we shouldn't even bother talking about it. But it's not all bad. I mean, the, you know, some of the work that's being done in connection with singularity, and I'm, I'm thinking of uh, the only connection I've ever had with, with those people is um, I went to a, a workshop in Washington some years ago that Ben Goetzel um, organized. And that was pretty good fun. I enjoyed that. It was very symbolic top-down AI, but, but at least Ben was trying to do some general intelligence work instead of all this highly specific, you know, good old-fashioned AI stuff. So it's not all, all bad, but I think Kurzweil and... and and all this um, doom saying is, is a dangerous thing, and, and, and the public picks up on it very quickly. Very I much so. To, yeah, very I much so. I seem to spend half my time trying to put those things right, you know, by giving lectures and things about how AI is a complete failure. I mean, I have to go to the opposite extreme, really, and say how dreadful it all is and how, how badly we've, we've done. Someone says Hugo's the only doomsaying one. Well, that's, that's, that's true to some extent. Uh, it's certainly Hugo has a pretty um, um, negative attitude to these things. Uh, and he'll be in charge when the revolution happens. But 
just the general idea that we're heading towards a singularity and superhuman intellect from machines is just absurd at the moment. There's no evidence for it whatsoever. We don't have any AI. AI is a complete failure. It's, it's not succeeded in doing what Alan Turing said it would have done by the turn of the century. Um, and it's about time we sort of put that story straight, I think. So we have a caller from California on the line as well. Hello, caller from California. Hello, it's uh, Bruce Damer calling in. Hi, Bruce. Oh, hey, Bruce. Hello, hello. So, Bruce, you, you come into the news and notes, but you've actually had the benefit of looking to, into the whites of their eyes, or at least the, the whites of their children's eyes with regards to the singularity movement. What's, what's your sense of the contemporary singularity movement? Well, from what I can see, um, there's like a split occurred sometime last year between Singularity Institute and Singularity something or other, i.e. a group kind of went off on its own without Ray, uh, and then the Singularity University got started at, at Ames. And I kind of hummed and hawed whether or not I wanted to have any association with it. Uh, and then uh, several friends said, "Oh, we're going down to do talks there. At least you can do you can talk about what you're working on." And so I put my hand up in the spring and said, "You know, I'd be happy to do a talk on space or the history of the evolution of computing or the evil grid or whatever." And they they're pretty enthusiastic and came back and said, "Put in a proposal." So I put in a proposal and I did the talk. I think on July 8th. Uh, down down at NASA Ames in front of a very very energetic group of, of mostly young people uh, that I was very impressed by. And in terms of the crowd as they kind of lap up around you after the talk, did you get a sense of what they're doing or, or why they're there, more importantly? Well, it seems as though, and I did, I asked one of the organizers, I said, look, in my talk I may be talking about why I agree with Steve grand and that there is no such thing as a singularity. It's a concept from science fiction and there it remains in science fiction. Um, and they said that's absolutely fine. I mean, you know, Ray is not setting the agenda and uh, you can talk about what you want to talk about. So I did a, a sort of sweep of computing history with starting with uh, the Colossus, which I just visited in Bletchley Park and Tony Sale, they had booted it up and I watched it run and then I went over to the Institute for Advanced Study and looked at the von Neumann and Oppenheimer archives. And as you know, I've been tracking the history of computing for some time. And I actually, about eight, nine years ago, Ray hired me, Ray Kurzweil hired me to generate statistics on GPU and CPU performance increases uh, over 25 years, which I dutifully did and I dutifully also wrote an essay that I used, I submitted along with the data to him. This was for the Singularity book he was working on. And the essay said, Ray, this is meaningless stuff. I can give you numerous examples of why it's meaningless uh, and why the Xerox Star workstation of 1981, as far as the user is concerned, is pretty much equivalent to a computer of 2003, uh, but it has a processor one one thousandth as powerful but still the entire space has been filled by other junk and that there hasn't been substantial progress and certainly in the operating system sphere, many, just many layers added, but no singularity about to occur in 
in in computing that I could see. So we have William R. Buckley on the line as well. Hello, William. Hello. How are you guys doing? Pretty good. We've Hi. got Steve Grand and Bruce Damer on the call already. Well, I've recognized hey, Bruce, but I I haven't heard Steve. Hello. Hey. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. So, I mean, could you predict when you when you gave Kurzweil back your graph? Could you predict, you know, end core processes or any of these kind of things, Bruce? Yeah, at that time, and and this is the the EvoGrid project is, you know, is based on the assumption that we were going to go into an end core multiscaler, you know, really not much faster in clock clock rate, but really a lot more cores. Um, and what's interesting is is, of course, when Danny Hillis designed the, the thinking machine, the connection machine in the late 1980s, the question was, what on earth do we do with all these processors? Um, and, you know, of course, Carl Sims and his evolving blocky creatures was one thing. Uh, but if, when you have hundreds of, of cores, you can certainly use, use them very well in a GPU and, and game graphics ch uh, chipsets. You know, a GPU or a core could be used to drive every pixel on the screen, basically. So there's a use for it. Um, there's certainly a use in the Evo Grid project itself uh, because we just need as much computing as we can in trillions of, of, of molecules. Uh, but, you know, that at that time, I basically was saying, I was cautioning Ray not to just make assumptions from the, either the clock rate increase or the number of CPUs because basically I was agreeing with, with Jaron Lanier when he wrote Half a Manifesto about the same time, saying that we're really pretty bad as a species at writing software, and if we expect software to write itself, we're, we're doubly fooled. Uh, and if we expect software to write itself and, and create a model of something called consciousness, which we don't even understand, we're triply fooled. Uh, can I come in there? It's... Um... It's always struck me that Moore's law is such a, and I think Bruce is saying this, that Moore's law is more or less irrelevant because uh, the, the limiting factor in, in computer science has never been the speed of processors. It's been uh, our ability to handle that speed and um, in particular the design of languages. So it's been the evolution of computer languages that's been the, the bottleneck in, in how we use computers, not the speed of the processor. And, and our ability to think. I mean, you know, if, if we gave Kurzweil and, and Co. a computer now that was 100 million times faster than, than anything that exists and 100 million times bigger than anything that exists, would it suddenly get up and walk and start being intelligent? I mean, how are they going to program it to do that? We still just don't have a clue how to do that yet. And I jump, jump in here as well and just conclude with, so I, I presented the, the sweep of computing history at the Singularity University session, and then um, the Evil Grid project, which in, on the face of it is very much kind of something that would interest them, although it's, a, it's in a sense trying to get emergence from the lowest possible level, and it, even pre-emergence, I would call it pre-evolution. And they were really enthused. They, they, I think that they've had a huge smorgasbord of different talks you know, everyone from Google to Second Life, Philip Rosedale there, to all kinds of things. They were getting really superb speakers. I mean, they were getting world-class talks. Uh, but this one, some of them came up to me at the end and said, this is, this is a really fundamentally interesting thing to us. And I, 
I got what I got the sense of was that none of them have the whites in the eyes sort of passionate following the singularity idea. There were there were a couple of extropians there from the extropian movement, but for the most part they were just bright young people able to absorb a huge amount of information. They're they're in their project phase now and they're building some kinds of projects. Um, but I, I'm not sure that, that that the entire anything to do with the singularity was that much discussed that I could see or at least raise science fiction idea of it. So, Steve, you've, you've listened to previous biotalives, and particularly previous biotalives that related to the EvoGrid. As we have the benefit of Bruce on the call, as you listened to the previous biotalives, you had some concerns associated with the EvoGrid. Can you kind of distill them and, and post them to Bruce as, as questions or uh, possible problems? Uh, well, I can try, but uh, I'll be talking out of my hat because um, I've only listened to a little bit of this and I'm not really up to speed with what's going on. Well, do you but, want Bruce uh, to give an introduction of maybe three or four minutes which you can talk to? Would that be easier? Sure, why not? Go ahead, Bruce. Well, Steve, in fact, a lot of what we're doing is inspired by uh, some of the, the writings you did, I think about a year ago, about ratcheting. Um, and Initially, the project started out as saying, came from Dick Gordon, actually, um, Dick Gordon's chapter in in the book, in the uh, book that, that uh, both Tom and I contributed to. And he, in fact, he said, Steve contributed as well. Yes, yes, Steve, you contributed that too. Well, did, yeah. uh, Dick's chapter was Hoyle's Tornado Origin of, origin of Artificial Origin of Life and basically challenging techies like us to say, you know, don't don't create an artificial life form. Sort of, don't design something. Start from the real basic stuff and let particles interact, or some some really really low level atomic process start and run on mass, and don't touch it and see what emerges. And you're probably not going to see little swimming machines but you may understand the emergence of emergence. You may understand that structures can form in space and, and things can run like little catalytic reactions through time. You can, get, you can get sequences through time or structures in space. And do those ever go to Darwinian natural selection? They might. If there's autocatalytic sets and things, they might. But just go back to basics. So I took that on as a challenge which is also the subject of my PhD work. Um, and we've got a whole team going. We've, we we uh, selected uh, in January, we picked, went through two or three molecular dynamics simulators that are offered, that are used in, the, in chemistry and biochemistry. And we picked Gromax from the University of Groningen and the Max Planck Institute. And it's amazing. It scales across grids. It can do hundreds of millions of particles, if not billions and has 10 years of development in it, and it's open source. So what we did by May is we, we built an engine around it. What we're trying to do is not only run Gromax and run, run the, the atoms and get them to form bonds and get those resultant molecules to, to form other structures. What we're trying to do is, is build a widget that will look at the simulation, i.e. multiple widgets will look at the simulation pool decide in that pool where there's something interesting going on by some definition 
and throw more processors at it or throw more compute simulation space at it to allow it to, to track itself out a little bit more and then basically feedback and say, here's more compute space for this little patch where vesicles seem to be forming. Now, we could be completely fooling ourselves, but I think of it as a shortcut to emergent complexity within this massive pool. And what we're going to do, in fact, I've hired a graduate student in South Asia. She's modifying the Boink grid, which is runs SETI at home, such that we can hopefully sequester a few hundred thousand or a million computers to do the searching for the patterns of interesting stuff. So anybody could write their, their own analyzer that pokes around in this huge database of particles and decide and, and decides to feed back information. It's almost like SETI at home upside down and that we're looking for signs of emergent complexity within our own little cosmos instead of looking at, at radio astronomy data from outside. So that's sort of a one breath nutshell of, of the project uh, as it stands. So we're building, we've built the feedback loop, we've run Gromax in iteration without crashing multiple times, formed bonds, stuffed it all back into Gromax, it runs at another thousand cycles and then comes dumps out again. And now the, the analyzer is being written. So that there you have it. Phew. <laughs> it's, it's a great project, and I talked briefly to Dick about it when, when I met him a while back. And I looked at the code, and see, I don't, I don't know Gromax, so I don't know what level of abstraction it uses. So you can maybe tell me I'm wrong here. But one of the things that sort of troubled me about it was the, the scale problem that, that um, you may be, you know, five orders of magnitude out in terms of the, the, the number of molecules you can actually afford to simulate. Uh, because, um, I mean, if you take, let's say, um, I mean, you, usually um, it's it's a reasonable guess to say that Avogadro's number per um, gram molecule is the number of molecules you're talking about. So, so say you had a, a, a soup of enzymes with a molecular uh, mass of uh, a thousand, then that's uh, six times to 10 to the 23 uh, molecules per kilogram which is six times 10 to the 11 molecules per picogram. So, so even the cell has got a hell of a lot of molecules in it. I mean, a hell of a lot. And, and if you're going to try um, modeling those down at the quantum or near quantum level, you're essentially going to be using all the computing systems on Earth just to model the tiniest little corner of a cell somewhere. And, you're here. Uh, you're absolutely correct, Steve. And in fact, we sort of hit this realization early on. And I sequestered about 20 advisors uh, for the project, uh, people from biochemistry, from origin of life studies. Uh, and they came back because I wanted to say, what, what are we doing? What, what, of what value is this? And that we can only, with a large computing blue gene array, we could probably simulate a centimeter of water, maybe. Um, and what if they said, if you're lucky, one of a number of them said, "Look, you don't have to do, you don't have to stick religiously to the chemistry." Now the chemists are saying, "Please stick to the chemistry. It'll give us a tremendous tool if you can make such a grid work." But they're saying, "Look, develop toy universes, and this is what 
what Freeman um, advised me to do. Develop toy universes, toy models. You own, what you care about is the emergence. You care about the complex structures coming up. Penny Boston was really clear on this. She's a, she's a biologist that studies extremophiles in caves. And she said, look, the chemists are always going to want you to be faithful to chemistry, but you're going to need an entire planet to do what you're trying to do. So do really abstract universes. Cut corners. All you care about is showing that complex structures can emerge, and they can emerge beyond just one level. They can ratchet up through multiple levels of complexity. Do, do an abstract. Basically, and this comes into uh, Bill and, of course, what Tom has been talking about, do a cellular automata chemistry or chemical automata. Do, do something, something that is really tooled down computing-wise but can still show the ratcheting complexity through time. Yeah, I think I think you're going to have to do that. You're going to have to have an abstract chemistry, uh, but it's quite important to think about what kind of chemistry that is. I mean, um, biology has really got three three classes of chemistry involved: um, energetic chemistry, uh, computational chemistry, and molecular biology. And um, energetic chemistry and computational chemistry are relatively similar. You could use the same kinds of abstract uh, representation for them. But in molecular biology, you're not really dealing with chemistry at all. It's all Vanderbilt forces and uh, and nanomachines. You know, it's conformational changes in proteins. So it's much more about mechanics and chemistry. And um, from reading Dick's first book, the, the, the well, the, the hierarchical <laughs> genome book, um, it seems like those those are the things that he needs more. Is those micro machines processes, those um, systems of, of um, little mousetrap gains that trigger each other and, and you know, changes in protein sizes and so on, because those are the things that are going to generate uh, waves across embryos and, and that kind of stuff. So that's quite a different kind of chemistry to um, small molecule chemistry, uh, where energies are important and, or, or, um, or even autocatalytic sets of enzyme reactions. So you've got to get the, the model right at the, at the beginning, I think, don't you? And if I can echo that, I mean, I think there's a real problem with regards to picking an existing chemical simulation and then trying to hope to tweak it to the point where you can get this kind of emergence. And this is really a two-part problem because following the kind of history of the EVO grid, what Bruce did very skillfully initially was excite the artificial life community at the potential of this being a contributing project. And as it kind of moved more into artificial chemistry to kind of chemical simulations to existing chemistry simulations trying to move it forward, I think some of that momentum is lost. And in recent parallel to the EvoGrid development, as Bruce mentioned, I've been developing this chemical automata uh, simulation, which is large quantized, well, relatively large quantized space, I mean, hundreds, if not uh, thousands of uh, of atoms and uh, compounds formed within each of these quantized cells. But as we have the benefit of William R. Buckley on the call as well, I mean, some of this chemical automata idea was really um, inspired by having you on BioLive and you're talking about Golly. Do you want to do you want to jump in here, William? Well, uh, what was what was capturing my attention on the chemistry side is the notion of uh, you know how do you how do you really simulate chemistry? seemed to me that the fundamental operation is Brownian motion. And I don't really see that uh, 
simulating the motions of molecules is going to be particularly useful to even a chemistry simulation, you know, an artificial chemistry. I would think that some of the computations necessary to physical processes are ancillary or pointless relative to other physical processes that you'd like to model, and it depends on where you apply those, those uh, computational uh, cycles, where you apply that throughput. The ability to, you know, to model a centimeter, a cubic centimeter of water is in part a uh, consequence of exactly what you mean by, by modeling. How accurate do you need your model to be? And it seems to me that some of the discussion centers around uh, excessive idealization of modeling every last scintilla of behavior in the natural world. And uh, that may be some of the, the source of conflict in determining whether you really have the computational resources to uh, conduct your model or not. The, the thing I like about cellular automata, of course, is because it's uh, massive numbers of processors all at once course it's all implemented in simulation it'd be nice to have a physical hardware cellular automata something that I can tile my wall with yeah, we'll get millions of cells in each direction but we're not there yet so we still have to use these von Neumann serial processors instead of a von Neumann cellular automata but and certainly when we had you last on William you, you portrayed this vision of kind of a tiara like Evo grid we have the, the benefit of Jay Hart Tom Ray's uh, long-time uh, software uh, developer and, and colleague in the chat. So, I mean, can you talk a little bit about the EvoGrid idea as a, a vast tier-like simulation that you leave and just kind of peek back into occasionally to see things evolving if they're there? Well, that would be my argument. Basically, to, to reiterate the talk, um, I have complaints re regarding how much bias you put in your models. And some of that goes back to comments I got from Richard Dawkins regarding Core War. But um, ultimately, you'd like to have some kind of large environment in which to conduct your experiments. I understand that. And I understand that that's pretty much where Bruce Damer's going, is how to create an environment of sufficient computational capacity that we can model biological or more complicated things than you see in, say, um, inorganic chemistry. Um, but how you actually accomplish that is how, how you build those models will, in some sense, how efficiently you can do so, in some sense determine, is determined by um, exactly how much detail you wish to model. And I tend to think that, you know, some of these some of the notions for the biogrid or the evogrid um, go to maybe a little bit too much length to model every last little detail of molecule motion. I don't really care that much. I don't think that it's, it's that critical to understand um, the trajectory of a particular hydrogen atom. I just don't see that that's a, a, a very big important issue in modeling living processes. I don't think you need that much detail. I think you need other kinds of things. I think this, this is what um, the art of artificial life is all about, really. If, if you look back to Chris Langton's original definition of artificial life, they're about, um, what is it, life, life as it is in, in the context of life as it could be. Life as it might uh, be, yeah. Yeah, the, the, the purpose of a life 
is to figure out the model, is, is to work out what are the uh, necessary components of any abstract model of life uh, that actually come up with the goods and produce the right emergent properties. And I think that probably applies here in EBA group too, that, that this discussion about what the model should be is the art of the whole process. I'll yeah. agree with that. That's true. And jumping in, jumping in here a bit because I'm hoping that Peter Newman is either... In he's, he's in the chat. He's <laughs> in the chat. Wonderful. Peter, you're welcome to, jo to join in in defense of our approach. Um, just a, a comment. I'm heading to in October to the Flint Lab. I'm uh, going to see Steen Rasmussen, Harold Fellerman, and, and Martin Hanzig again. Um, we're actually sitting down and looking at a track that's planned for Artificial Life 12 that's on this very subject, exactly this very subject, the modeling of emergence, whether it be chemistry-inspired or abstract or whatnot, a, a, an actual theme for a Life 12, uh, which I'm hoping that will grow into a standalone event at some point. And I know Dick Gordon would certainly certainly like to make that Biota 5, um, that emergent Biota 5, in, maybe in Winnipeg, uh, subsequent year, 2011. So I know what is going to happen. I'm going to get a tremendous amount of pull by people who are in the lab trying to make things happen in chemistry, a tremendous pullback saying, look, we can observe things in chemistry that are happening that are computational, such as the formation of, of membranes. Can you, can you please give us the best tool that will help shine the light in the darkness? And they're going to be coming back. And so both of you are right. I mean, all three of you are right. It's a dance between do we model the movement of every hydrogen atom or do we do something really abstract that a chemist would sort of look at and blink and say, well, it's all well and good, but I can't use that in day-to-day -day work. What Steen said was, was interesting. He said the first phase of soft day life, you know, in Mark Badeau's definition of soft, wet, and hard, um, the, first, the first phase really was doing these, these abstract toy universes. And Steen basically switched his career to do the Flint project and to do the proto-life work, to go back into chemistry and say we have to, we have to go back to basics and we have to really look at how life might have emerged. We have one data point, and we need to do the software side of it. And when I went to see him uh, last February, he said, "Oh my God, this is exactly what our field needs: is this kind of work, even if it's rudimentary, even if it's just a start." Um, just give us some tool like this that will really help you know, shine that torch into the darkness for us here, here in the in the chemical wing of things. Do you feel uh -huh. you're developing a tool, though, Bruce? I mean, this has been a kind of continuous narrative in parallel to the Evo Grid. The idea of summoning the Evo Grid. And we have Luke Johnson in the chat, who I spoke with on last Biot Live. He's a an Australian roboticist is interested in calling in and talking to you in particular, Steve. Um, but the, the discussion that I had with Luke was that every artificial life developer that has had some contact with the EvoGrid has their own particular idea. And what I'm trying to do with the chemical automata simulation is say the principles behind these things, as, as William noted as well, are relatively simple. We can all kind of cast our own ideas in software. We all have this ability because we've developed artificial life in the past. Why not actually create a number of these simulations in parallel that could all answer various components of the EvoGrid-related challenge and create a kind of plurality of solutions that, you know, maybe the uh, 
biologists like, maybe the chemists like, maybe the science fiction authors like. I mean, maybe all these groups can be uh, agreeable to at least one of the simulations that are generated. But that way, the artificial life community in terms of, you know, folks have been developing this stuff as, as Steve has for, you know, two decades can utilise this amazing collective knowledge to create a series of projects. I mean, what do you think about that, Bruce? Oh, you, you've absolutely pegged it. You've, you've, you've hit the, uh, the golf ball to the nine-yard line or whatever you would, whatever analogy you could come up with. In, and in fact, the, there should be a plurality of approaches. Um, it will be a, all a richer effort. And what I, what I think Peter and I are trying to do with this, this first thing we're calling an evil grid is saying, hey guys, it all seems to come down to um, if, if we want to things to emerge, then we're, we're running a black box somewhere, and the black box is running a huge amount of computation, and you can't visualize it all, and you can't, with the human-aided eye, look at it. But what you can do is build these artificial eyes that are distributed on many, many computing systems to look for interesting stuff. And if you find interesting stuff, you could flag it, and the human eye could look at it, or you could decide to drive the simulator in some some manner. And I think it's, it's the evil grid technique. It's that very technique, which is like SETI at home. It's derivative of SETI at home, but it actually has a feedback mechanism to try to generate more interesting stuff in the simulation. So it's, the evil grid at a meta level is, is publishing and promoting an approach to doing this kind of thing. Did you both have, um, have a meta model actually have an, an infrastructure for producing chemical models of various kinds, so you've got some kind of common software that could be used as a tool for more... Because it strikes me that if, you, if you're not careful, you'll, you'll um, not be able to please all of the people, and you'll end up having to write billions of lines of code because everyone wants fundamentally different models. Um, and it may be that there's, there's some kind of common theme to all possible models of chemistry, and that you can come up with an abstraction in the, in the same way as Turing came up with the universal Turing machine as a kind of abstraction of all possible machines. And maybe you can do that with chemistry too, that there's a, a, a common underlying meta-model for chemistry from which you can then make experimental uh, abstract chemistries and compete them with each other and you know, um, find out which ones produce the most emergent results. Yeah, that, that actually is, is, is crisply stated. That, that In fact, I've just reread a biography of Turing to try to understand the, the environment of the late 1930s when he was looking at promoting the idea of mathematical machines. And, and it, you're exactly right. I mean, it, in a sense, there's almost a mathematical model that's called for sort of distributed, uh, large-scale, emergent uh, simulation with analysis of bits and pieces of that simulation space. So it could contain Williams automata. It could contain chemical automata that Tom is talking about. It could contain bouncing pieces of geometry, you know, a, a polygonal a polygonal chemistry, a polygonal universe. It really could be anything, but it will always perhaps be a, a giant Turing machine that is that is running and generating a huge amount of stuff to look at, and then there will be little Turing machines reading those those tapes and looking for patterns, and, and maybe that's 
that's it, in its simplest terms what, what evil grids are. It's an interesting parallel with um, neural networks and, and neuroscience, uh, I think, because um, if you look at a real brain and, and real neurons, I mean, a single real neuron is an incredibly complex machine with dozens of different external chemicals, hundreds of different genes being involved in, in the synaptic changes and so on. So, so if you're trying to write the, um, the recipe for a single neuron, you'd have something with maybe 10,000 variables in it. And the trouble is we don't know which of those 10,000 variables is relevant to actually thinking. Uh, we don't know which ones are necessary and which ones are just a consequence of Earth biology and, and uh, are just there to make the whole system work, like the sort of valves and pipes that run around a, a jet engine. Um, and so what happened way back in, in the early days of AI was that the connectionists thought, oh, well, a neuron must be a machine that sums its inputs. And um, so... Uh, some of products became the basis for connectionism and almost all of the connectionism has grown out of that but, but it's wrong, I mean real neurons aren't simple sum of products devices and there's, there's, there's almost certainly there are a lot of variables in real neurons turn out to be far more important than people gave them credit for and it's, it's, this is a similar thing that, that, um, that William was saying that, that there's a hell of a lot of variables in chemistry and we don't know which ones are relevant or, and which ones can be ignored. But that is what artificial life is there for, is trying to establish these things, trying to fig figure out which are the, the crucial variables, which ones are uh, necessary for all chemistries. And I, I think jumping in, jumping in here, there's one measure, uh, one wonderful measure. If we see, if we define what we want to come out of these black boxes, these evil grids, and we start seeing the, the stuff, the behavior, the structures emerging, it actually, it, 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 it's what you're looking for. It's not trying to characterize or model uh, the entire universe that you've decided to create. It's actually, does it produce? Does it, does it, does it come up with the things that you think of as, as, as emergent complexity or structures or behaviors, etc.? The proof is in the pudding in the sense in the eating. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, this, and that's a hierarchical thing, too. You don't necessarily have to wait until ribosomes form or whole cells form or anything like that. You can look at your protochemistries, your, your candidate chemical models, and look for simple things like the beginnings of membrane formation um, and uh, conformational changes in molecules and uh, ion channel type behavior. And, and so they're relatively simple properties that you could you could detect to find out whether your model of chemistry shows some signs of being in the, on the right lines. And maybe you could do some of those early tests before you sort of let the thing loose on, on the bigger stuff. So just before we round out this topic, Steve, has, has Bruce been able to convince you? Are you a convert to the Evo grid? Oh, well, I was never uh, a, a naysayer to the concept. I love the concept. I mean, that's what we're all trying to do in artificial life is, is come up with the, the minimal system to use the maximal complexity. And the grid's a great start. Um, it's, uh, my only concerns were whether you'd all been able to think through some of these essentially philosophical issues about what classes of chemistry are necessary, which, which properties are necessary and sufficient, um, and whether you might end up writing hundreds of thousands of lines of code and going down the wrong 
the wrong road. So that was my only concern. Yeah, but I think the project is a great idea, and I'm all for it. And has this concern been resolved this evening? Um, yeah, it, it seems like you've been thinking about it. Um, I still think there's a long way to go. Um, and one of the things that we haven't talked about that I'd like to be convinced a bit about was this notion of, of machines for detecting interesting things. You know, the pattern detectors that say, oh, well, look over here, something good is going on. Because that's actually a pretty demanding problem in AI terms. Uh, how do you detect what an interesting thing looks like? I mean, it's hard enough to get a, uh, a pattern detecting system to recognize the capital A, let alone something interesting and biological, you know? Uh, so that will worry me a bit. Maybe you're glossing over some of the difficulties there. Yes, I'm writing a book chapter on exactly that topic currently. How one searches through this uh, algorithmic soup and actually finds things of interest. So I think it's something that the community is considering quite seriously currently, Steve, even if it isn't being uh, actively talked about. It's a real luxury to have you on Biota Live. It's been almost two years exactly since you last appeared on a Biota podcast. In terms of the past two years, I mean, Bruce mentioned your blog. Recently, uh, I saw a brief image of a, a game which I don't believe you're still developing, but the idea was a, a genotype, phenotype swimming game. Can you talk a little bit about that development? Uh, yeah, sure. It's... it's um... I feel a bit embarrassed about it all because I did write, I got it to alpha and then decided I didn't like it anymore and, and gave up writing it. I've had a bit of a turbulent few years personally and um, so that kind of got in the way of development. But um, the game was called Symbiosis and, and, um, and the idea actually goes back to 1979 uh, when I first started writing it. Computers were a bit slower in those days. But the idea was to produce a, a, a minimal um, Lego set of cells, cell types, and allow people to just plug them together to make circuits of cells that can do something interesting, in other words, organisms. So, because um, by the time I actually got around to writing this properly, we were into 3D, and so I could do this in a much more interesting way uh, in proper 3D. So, so I came up with a, a scheme for producing libraries of cell type sensors, uh, computational cells, um, and um, actuators. And you could just plug these things together to make simple creatures, rather like Breitenberg vehicles, but arbitrarily complex. And, um, and the idea was just to build ecosystems of these things that could eat each other and um, you know, parasitize each other and so on. And it was good fun. I enjoyed it, writing it, but... Um, it turned out to be a little bit complex, and I thought the learning curve was maybe a bit too steep for a commercial game. So I'm not sure if you followed the narrative in Bias Live, but certainly Jeffrey Ventrella, um, in terms of swimmers, has a, a long background in terms of writing swimmer games and, and uh, these kind of underlying ideas. And recently I've been working with Jeffrey, moving some of his fundamental simulations into open source. We're yet to get gene pool open source. Um, but certainly there's a, a project within the next uh, six or so months to actually do that. In terms of this game itself, is it's, uh, do you think it's something that you'll return to, or is this something that you would consider moving open source? Uh, well, I don't have the 
time to manage an open source project, but um, and I could give away my source code, I guess, but uh, it would be a bit opaque. It's, um, it's a thing I'd like to return to at some stage. It's somewhat different from Jeffrey's work. For a start, evolution wasn't really relevant to it, but those, those are creatures were genetically coded. They're quite complex. And, um, what I was interested in getting really was the equivalent of electronics for cell biology. You know, in electronics, you've got a reasonably small number of basic components that you can plug together into arbitrarily complex circuits to make things that do really clever stuff. And um, and that's what I was playing with with these symbiosis cells. Um, and and I, I really enjoyed the process of thinking that through, trying to find a mechanism for getting any cell to plug into any other cell and still do something useful uh, without any kind of interface problems and so on. So it's something I'd like to come back to, but it, it turned into quite a complex piece of code. And I don't know that it's much use trying to put it out there for other people to play with. Are you familiar with framsticks at all? Because that seems to be seems to have at least vents into what you're talking about. Yeah, it's it's related to framsticks, but again, it's more complex. From what I remember of framsticks, and I haven't seen that for many years now, there's a relatively small number of uh, building block types. Uh, but here I, I was talking about you know maybe a hundred different kinds of building block um, with with more emphasis on the computational complexity of cells, on the things they can do to modulate cell-cell um, signals, um, rather than just on the input-output side, on, on the, um, the actuators and sensors side. Yes, I was going to ask you about that. I mean, whether they were... I mean, obviously you say, you know, you say 100 or what have you, but I mean, obviously they're categorized into groups, surely, of, of different kinds of things. The categorization was kind of evolving. Uh, that, that was what was interesting for me, personally, trying to design this thing. First of all, I had to come up with some kind of scheme for how cells can talk to each other so that A can connect to B, even though A doesn't know what B is for, and the result does something useful. Uh, and that went through an evolution of about four different mechanisms um, for how to connect cells together. And obviously there was a basic differentiation between sensors, actuators, and the stuff that goes in between the two, computational cells of various kinds. But, but gradually as I was working through this, I keep on designing new cell types and thinking, oh, that would be useful. And then I, I discovered that, that it was very similar to two other cell types I had already made. And if I threw them all away and started again, I could come up with one cell type that, that contains... Uh, a more generalized mechanism. Um, like a lot of the stuff, I started using computing on surfaces, uh, two-dimensional two graphs, essentially, you know, mathematical surfaces that could be used by, by modulating the surface. You could produce integrators and differentiators and uh, comparators and uh, all sorts of basic computational elements out of the same thing. So I went through this process of, of starting out trying to build cells that I thought I needed and then seeing similarities between them that, that allowed me to develop sort of meta-cells rather like we were talking about just now with the chemical simulator uh, and finding more basic building blocks. So this is almost fun. the idea of kinetics evolving into kind of a nervous system internally as well. Is that, is that what I'm hearing? 
a nervous system inside the cells, you mean? Well, no. I mean, if, if you start with cell primitives, that they have uh, movement and, and, you know, these kind of elements, the communication of this movement through their... Through their um, through their membranes can actually form a kind of gestalt intelligence over these kind of walkers or swimmers or what have you. Um, I'm not sure I understand the question, Tom, sorry. So uh, what you were describing was actually um, kind of starting out with a number of building blocks and then moving them together, but then actually looking at um, kind of structural elements. And as these structural elements put themselves together, my understanding was that what came through this was communications and almost a kind of group intelligence of the cells as they were together. Am I right in that interpretation? Oh yes, I think so. I think that's, that that was the whole point was the gestalt, the way that um, um, the, the whole was more than the sum of its parts, which is of course what we're all about. Um, the, the basic model I had in my mind for it all was analog computation. Um, so it's very undigital, the whole thing. So, so my basic elements started out as things like integrators, differentiators, comparators, because those are the, the, the basic building blocks for an analog computer. And um, but I was always trying to keep them quite biological as well. So I didn't have the level of granularity wasn't at the level of neurons. Um, it was somewhat higher than that. And and. Um, it's a bit hard to explain. You, you really have to kind of look at it to see what I was getting to. So, um, in terms of in terms of the source code, kind of sitting waiting for your your interest to to spark in the future, could you see a model where you moved it open source for other developers to maintain, and you then return? I, I think, in particular, the creatures wiki. I mean, this is you know this is fundamentally kind of you know your original ideas being taken and moving in open source directions and then you coming back sporadically to kind of, you know, talk to the, the gathered masses, so to speak. I mean, do you feel that this simulation could have a similar, uh, you know, a similar existence in an open source community? Well, it's possible if people can understand my code. <laughs> There's an awful lot of it. Um, it's reasonably well commented, but I wouldn't want... I, see, I, I have no income. I can't, I can't afford to devote much time to documenting source code for a project I'm not working on. Certainly. Um, but I think there's an existing community, and certainly I'm feeling this with regards to Jeffrey Ventrella's work. Uh, I mean, Jeffrey co comments very slightly, but doesn't really comment a lot. And a lot of the structures, as you read his code, comes through other things and, you know, staring at and reflecting for a few days. So, I mean, his source code is probably slightly more extreme, maybe, than what you're describing with yours, and yet there is a community that's obviously very excited by Jeffrey's work as there's obviously probably an even larger community that's very excited by your work and would certainly easily be able to take this project on without you know disturbing you as you uh, you develop your next project I mean this is something that you know you could see yourself doing well it's possible Tom yeah I haven't really thought about it much um but it's a shame to waste certainly and I do comment heavily I write more comments than I do code so um, it's explicable in, in that sense, uh, but it's also rather more complex than most AI simulators, so there's so quite a lot of it. Um, one of the reasons I stopped doing it was that it was, uh, it's written in C-sharp and um, on Managed DirectX, and Managed DirectX is obsolete now. Um, so from a commercial perspective, it, it wasn't a good idea. I'd have had to convert it to XNA, and... Uh, I just couldn't be fast, to be honest. <laughs> but, but tell you what, I'll send you the source code, and you see what you can make of it. Very good. And you, just, 
And tell you me heard it on Biota Live first, people. The Steve <laughs> Grant fan base will be emailing me, no doubt, as soon as this goes live. So, yeah. Steve, are you in a position where you can talk about your current project at all? No, I wish I could, but I, I don't have a current project. What, what, um, I gave up the symbiosis one just because from a commercial perspective, it didn't seem the right thing to be doing because uh, my life has changed somewhat lately. And um, so what I was going to do was write another creatures, essentially, because it's, what, 17 years since I started writing creatures now, and uh, computers are 100 times faster, and they've got you know 3D and all this other stuff that didn't exist before. And I learned an awful lot of biology and so on. So, uh, so what I wanted to do was create a, um, another simulation similar in concept to creatures, just a bunch of living things that people go off and explore and understand and interact with. Uh, I was going to base it on a, on a, um, a hypothetical moon surrounding a planet somewhere, and, and so this moon has been discovered and it had life forms on it of many species, and the user's job was to just go and explore the moon and find out what they could about these creatures, how they worked, take them apart, try to teach them things, try to you know, contact the more intelligent ones and so on. Which is a project I'd still like to do, but when I realised how much work was involved, I realised that my money was going to run out before I managed to complete the code. And uh, so I've shelved it for a bit, and I'm going to write a book instead. Very good. But I just don't know what yet. Well, the need for books is, uh, you know, a current topic. In fact, it was something I was going to raise in the news and notes because I've been contacted with regards to two separate books currently and I'm writing chapters furiously accordingly. I think this is really the time as the economy, you know, dives down that we can kind of, rather than bunker down, I had some correspondence with Bruce, I think yesterday, associated with what the artificial life community was going to do. Now such a large number of... Our, um, you know, our colleagues were either unemployed or underemployed, and I said that I thought, you know, the artificial life community had learnt from um, certainly what happened in the, uh, you know, mid to late 90s, and we'd probably all uh, find different ways to maintain productive goals. And certainly, I'm going to be maintaining bios alive um, <laughs> for as long as I'll give me a phone line and a computer. Um, but uh, Bruce, as you listen in with regards to this, I mean. You have Steve Grand on the line. What would you like to see Steve Grand write a book about? Well, gosh, that's a that's a tall order. I I think just his philosophy of life, and maybe his his philosophy or approach to the future of humanity, and as as a guide, how does Steve Grand see us being able to survive as a species? Wow, thank you, Bruce. That down. <laughs> if Bruce thinks it's a good idea, then it's a good idea. It's um, that that's quite possibly what I will write about. Um, one one of my uh, possible topics is a book called Machines Like Us, uh, which is a based on a talk I gave a long time ago about human beings as machines and what that implies for us as a species and how we think of ourselves and questions of morality and so on. Um, or I might write a book about um, existence and um, how the universe comes into being and you know how how, how systems self-organise. Uh, but I'm I'm playing around with them. Oh, uh, something that did occur to me to say tonight while I'm on is uh, 
that we really need to get our act together with AI, with artificial life. I, I just wrote the um, the article on artificial life for Britannica, you know, Encyclopedia Britannica. And do you know that this is the first time we've had one? There wasn't an article on artificial life in Britannica until now. And they gave me a thousand words, which is not very much. And uh, AI got 12,000 words. Gosh. Since AI is a subset of artificial life, I think we really need to redress that balance. Does Britannica still matter, though? Um, It's still an important reference uh, tool, yes, because it's citable in a way that Wikipedia often isn't. Um, Wikipedia obviously has got a decent article on artificial life. A lot of that is changing with regard to Wikipedia. It's, That's true. Uh, yeah, its acceptability is rapidly improving. But it's um, either way. I think an article on AI life really ought to be longer than an article on AI, since the one is a subset of the other. Well, that's one way to look at it. Um, but in terms of Wikipedia versus uh, Britannica, there really is a big um, rivalry between the two. Um, I admit to being a little bit biased because I do edit some of Wikipedia myself. But in general, the quality of the articles are really very, very good. There's occasionally some problems with details, and you do need to check what's printed there. Um, but I think that the Wikipedia is rapidly becoming the encyclopedia of choice. Oh, I agree. I wouldn't, wouldn't dispute that. I mean, it's the first place I go to look anything up. I'm sure that's the truth, truth for most people in the world. There's three million articles in it, and you know some of them are drivel, but there's an awful lot of good material there. Well, I mean, I've I've had the fellow who edited the um, artificial life entry on Wikipedia on. In fact, it's probably the most downloaded podcast out there because I actually attached it to the Wikipedia artificial life article. But I mean, certainly uh, he considered the topic as something that was so uh, ballooning and almost quite overwhelming that I think he's actually put down. Uh, the active um, writing of the artificial life topic. Steve, in five sentences, can you summarize your uh, your entry with regards to artificial life? Oh, um, too much evolution. That's the, <laughs> that, that was my conclusion. Uh, there's very little you can say in a thousand words. So I tried to explain that, uh, that the whole point is Chris Langton's original plan uh, we don't understand what's necessary and what's just a mess in biology. So A-Life is a way of abstracting it out and, and working out what the, the principles of biology are. And then I talked a bit about some of the techniques they use, like uh, genetic algorithms and so on. And so in terms of the usual suspects, what names were attached to artificial life? Oh, I only named one person. That was Chris. Right. Uh, there, wasn't, there wasn't space for citations. Sorry, I, I didn't want to, to make it too detailed in any case because there are philosophical questions about artificial life that, that you need to get across to the public. Yes, I think that was the problem with the the Wikipedia entry on artificial life was it became too technical and then avoided philosophy and then shot back the other way and then it became a list of names and now it's really just a skeleton. I mean, it's not there's no real information there um, aside from a series of links. Let me the most you can hope to do in a, in a thousand-word encyclopedia article is, is pique people's interest and, and get them to look further. Um, so you need to stick to the generalities, I think, for a short article. Wikipedia is different because it can have as long an article as you like. 
Um, somehow things are easier to read when they're on screen. Uh, but, uh, but I wanted to talk a bit about the difference between hard and soft AI and, you know, are, are these things really alive or not? And um, other sort of ontological questions. Yes, I put back to the Dawkins editors on Wikipedia that um, actually my, my facts were wrong. I thought his um, reference associated with artificial life had been expunged, but using various uh, tracking techniques, I couldn't actually find the original uh, Dawkins article. I think it had been connected to the A-Life article as these things occur. But I mean, in terms of the Chris Langton, obviously, but in terms of Tom Ray, uh, Jeffrey Ventrella was an interesting case because his article was expunged from Wikipedia on three separate occasions. I was called in to provide a reference. Uh, you've maintained a relatively small article on, on Wikipedia, Steve, but it doesn't, I mean, you need to go to the Creatures Wiki to get any real information. In terms of, uh, you know, folks maintaining the artificial life entry on Wikipedia, what do you think should be there? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, well, it, it maybe needs uh, pointing to lots of other articles. We can do with articles on genetic algorithms and um, L systems and some of the basic techniques that the common to their life, and and some history of the of the folk involved. I mean, particularly that first generation of pioneers. Um, I haven't looked at the A life article for a long time to tell the truth. Um, but his, historically speaking, it's not a, that's not an easy way to track the subject because nothing much has changed um, over the last decade. Ooh, now that is a contentious topic for potentially <laughs> a future bias alive that will get you back on, Steve, I think. <laughs> All right, and I, I'll say this then. There's too much evolution in A-Life. We'll, we'll, we'll have a bias alive on that sometime. So we have the benefit of having uh, Luke Johnson, a.k.a. Tolkis, on from Australia. He's a roboticist who we had on last Bios Live. And Steve, I, I think he has a, a couple of robotics, A-Life-related questions for you. Hello, Tolkis. Hey, how you going, Tom? I, you got to mention I'm a hobbyist. It sounds uh, a bit Certainly. too um, Yeah, no, I've, I had a look at um, Steve's work. I'm going to order his book. They're growing up with AI quite soon. Um, yeah, I'm actually interested in um, doing basically very similar to what he does, you know, I experiment with um, mixing AI and artificial life um, together with, with robots and, and, and the human interactive robots. So um, I've, I've probably got too many questions to ask. I've actually gone back to what you are talking about before with the chemical simulations and the any emotion. I think um, that the chemical simulations could be used as a keeping uh, as a reference, like a litmus test, so that you could then test all the other processes that that are what uh, included in, in evolution of, of life. Sorry, I'm not sure I followed that. You're, you're suggesting that, that? Can you can you say that again? Sure, sure. Um, yeah, rather like uh, you were talking before about the focus being on the chemical simulations as being the major part of the Evo grid, and and talking about there being so many other processes that are crucial to to evolution and self assembly and brand new motion. All these things um, could be you could basically we've got a lot of data on chemical simulations and a lot of chemicals and all the biology, so we could use all that data as a, a reference so that 
when, when you run a simulation, you get to a point where you say, well, this works with our chemical simulation. Okay, we're not running a chemical simulation in this simulation, but we have the same result. That's basically the point I'm trying to make. Right, yes. The, 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 definitely the whole point is trying to, to get the result with the minimal uh, input. Um, it's, it's difficult because uh, since we don't know all of the processes of evolution and cell formation and morphogenesis and so on, and since we don't know all of the processes of chemistry either, there's going to be a... Um, a hunting problem where where you don't know whether your model is wrong or the data you're testing the model against is wrong. Um, it's going to be very suck it and see, I think. But uh, but this is what the process of artificial life is. It's it's you know it's synthetic science. The whole point is not to do analysis but to do synthesis and try these things out and see if they work and uh, learn from from that that process. Um, I really hope it works out for the Evo grid too. So if I can ask a, a robotics A-life question, what can the artificial life community learn from the robotics community, Steve? There's, there's a series of conferences. I don't know whether it's still going. SAB. Is, is SAB still going? Do you know, Tom? The, the simulation of adaptive behavior? Uh, I'm not sure. I haven't been to one for some years, but, but that conference circuit has been going for as long as A-Life and um, ECAL, the European Conference on Artificial Life, and it's kind of halfway between robotics and, and A-Life. Um, the people in SAB tend to build um, insect robots, and so they're interested in real biology. They're interested in how do, um, how do cataglyphics of desert ants uh, navigate, that kind of uh, question. How, how do real animals do real solve real problems and they use robotics to do that so there already is a, a kind of sub-community of somewhere between robotics and A-Life where, where they build a lot of insect and, and invertebrate robots and it's quite a healthy community and in many ways it's a more healthy community than, than the pure A-Life community is. And is it a hobbyist community as well or is it purely academic? Um, well uh, it's largely academic um, and there, there are um, what's the name of the guy who does insect robots that he sells? Uh, Mark something? Mark Tilden. Mark Tilden. Tilden, that's it, yeah. So, so there's the, the, um, his, his little robots kind of tap into the, the hobbyist community in the same vein. But, um, but the SAB conference, conferences are quite high-level um, academic papers and um, heavy-duty stuff. So there's not okay. much... Having something here, just for your curiosity, Steve, my day job or one of my day jobs is doing robot, high-fidelity physics-based robot rover simulation for NASA. And, you know, we, I, I was developing that uh, shortly after we did Biota 2 and Biota 3, and it, it blossomed into 10 years of work that Peter Newman and Brian and a bunch of us have been doing. And what's interesting is we're currently in a proposal phase for a new bunch of work for NASA next year on connecting uh, real uh, real field test rovers, uh, planetary rovers, in a common uh, service-oriented architecture into a 3D simulator, you know, our 3D simulator. And it, it, what's interesting for me is, is, as you're describing it, is I 
in a sense, I'm now living at the two ends of the spectrum. I'm living in robot simulation, and I'm living in chemical simulation, at least intellectually now, and maybe they can be brought together. <laughs> I, I never thought you would leave the virtual world, Bruce, and come into reality. <laughs> Welcome uh, to reality. No, no, fear, no fear of that. It's <laughs> just the rest of us that feel like we live in a virtual world. But moving from moving from uh, my discussion with Tolkis last uh, Biota Live, I mean, Tolkis and I were kind of brainstorming the possibilities, and particularly you've touched on the uh, kind of hobbyist robotics, small companies selling components into the robotics community, Steve, and, and Tolkis was also mentioning that last Biota Live. Do you think there's a model for the artificial life community where we you know, form small companies and create some form of product that, uh, you know, robotics hobbyists could use. You mean hardware product? Possibly. Possibly software, um, possibly hardware. Yeah, it's, uh, the, 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 the hobby robotics business is a very, very tough business. Not many people survive long in it, um, and they don't make a great deal of money if they do. So it's not, a, not an easy world to, to make a living in. Uh, but then that's partly because most of the companies that end up doing uh, serving the hobby robotics market um, are engineers, and so they come from the perspective of servos and motors and uh, control boards, and you know even sensors are a bit uh, off their normal path. Uh, and there aren't many people who who are involved in the robotics world. Uh, who come at it from the AI perspective, or certainly not the artificial life perspective. So there's certainly um, scope, I would have thought, the market there for um, artificial creatures as opposed to, um, you know, standard platform three-wheel robots. Um, and there's, there are people out there who would avidly buy such things if you can make them cheap enough. And in terms of it being a kind of after-hours project, not the day job, I mean, do you think there's a model that the artificial life community could move to in terms of either selling small bits of hardware or software for the robotics community? Is that more a possibility? Uh, you mean uh, components for, for the robotics community as opposed to fully-fledged robots? Well, yes, exactly. Could be. If you can use them, what, what's lacking, I think, in, in that interface between robot hobbyists, the general public, and, and robot builders, uh, is ingenuity. Um, there's not a great deal of ingenuity involved, not a lot of lateral thinking. Uh, it all tends to be quite straightforward engineering. Uh, the sensors tend to be dumb and uninteresting sensors. And anyone who works in artificial life soon discovers how ingenious biology is and how you know how different a retina is from a camera, how different uh, a touch uh, touch sensor in a living thing is from a whisker sensor on a robot, and um, and how much computation goes into even these quite basic elements of robotics. So, so I'm sure there's scope for adding the ingenuity, you know, value-added stuff where where the insights we have in artificial life could turn dull electronics into more interesting modules. The, the symbiosis project that, that I've stopped doing, and I'll send you the source code for, um, when I originally started doing it in 1979, it was in software. And then I realized that um, computers weren't smart enough, fast enough. And um, so in the middle, well, just after creatures, I guess, 
I started doing the same thing in hardware. Um, I got some funding to build physical cells that you could plug together in arbitrary combinations, and they were sensors and actuators and computational devices. And um, there's definitely scope for someone to build a kind of robotic toolkit like that, where, where there's an elegance in the architecture that means you can produce a, a huge variety of robots from um, a, a relatively small Lego set of, of building blocks. Yes, I thought initially you were really describing a kind of return to us writing books for the robotics community, but I think this is a very interesting idea, and particularly Tolkien says, I, I plan on moving Steve's symbiosis open source relatively soon. I mean, as you listen in, does that sound like something that could benefit the robotics community, the hobbyist robotics community in particular? Definitely, definitely. Um, there's, there's a bit of research, I think it's Robert Fool's lab in the States, so they're trying to work on like having a black box where you can just attach sensors and motors and use um, uh, basically have an adaptive um, design so that you can experiment and prototype with as many different uh, forms as you want. And that's something that if, if hobbyists could have, that, that, and as you say, there's not a lot of, of hobbyists that have got the AI perspective. So if you can take out a lot of that from the equation, it would enable a lot cooler robots being coming out of the hobby sector, and 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 they would buy that as a as a product, like a chip or a board. But I think also um, even just software modules. If you had a, a software module that you could then attach, you know, not necessarily a whole package that includes the board and the the, the software. Just the software alone could be a product. And also, I think um, Xbox Live could be a good market where you make a game. There's millions of people out there that'll pay ten dollars for an, an artificial life game and play it on their, at home in their lantern. Is that something you thought about, Steve? Uh, what, writing an Xbox game? Yes. Uh, well, um, certainly the, the game I started writing that I've shelved while I wrote a book um, is based on XNA for its 3D code, and so that can port to Xbox pretty easily. Although um, the Xbox market and the PC market are very different kinds of people think about things in different ways, and... Uh, so probably a game that an A Life game that worked well on Xbox would be quite different from a game that would work well on PC. I think it has to be a bit more action oriented. I think a lot of I play live myself, and I think across live you get a very big cross section. Look, unfortunately, there's a lot of young kids that act like idiots in this virtual world, but um, there's people from all demographics, and I think parents want something that they can. Stays more educational for their kids, so that's something that you know could be a selling point. Yeah, well, that's true. The educational possibilities for artificial life projects are huge because the whole point of AI life is that it's abstract biology. So it's a great way of of teaching people the fundamentals of biological systems in a nice, entertaining, and friendly way because it's so much less messy than than real pets, for example. Now, there's a lot of scope. I think. It, to some extent, we don't have the, the technology or the philosophy yet. We haven't actually done our own science well enough uh, to do the really interesting things commercially. But there is a market out there. I mean, my Creatures game, I think, in total, sold 2 million copies. Uh, I wish I'd got the money for it. But um, you know, it, it demonstrated that there is a, a huge market out there for people who are interested in what life is. And that's what we're all interested in. You know, what is life? What does it mean? Um, and 
and also when I was writing creatures all those millions of years ago, I, I, it would have taken a fifth of the time to write if it weren't for marketing departments because I spent most of my time fighting about the design because everyone kept telling me that people aren't interested in science and I should hide all the science crap. And uh, and I think the creatures community proved them completely wrong, that there are certainly two million people out there who are very interested in science and the the, the skill that was put into trying to understand the creature's genome and um, do experiments on, on these little norms uh, was just mind-blowing. Uh, kids were doing really quite advanced science and uh, it was quite impressive. So, so there's a market out there, there's a thirst for it. Everyone wants to know what life is. Everyone wants to understand what consciousness is. Uh, everyone gets easily attached to living things and, uh, and somebody somewhere can make some money out of it, I'm sure. It just won't be me, I bet. Certainly watching uh, Will Wright's discussion of Spore, I think there's certainly, he, he was, seems to be similarly perturbed by not only a marketing but also a legal department associated with what Spore ended up being. But interestingly, Genova Chen's interpretation of Jeffrey Ventrella's work in Flow proved that uh, you can actually have artificial life or artificial life-like um, simulations on consoles. I mean, it was a success on the PlayStation 3, although not on uh, Xbox necessarily. Steve, it has been absolutely wonderful having you on Biota Live. And I mean, I think we've introduced the format to you do you think you would be interested in participating in potential future biotolites? Oh, sure. You've sucked me in there, Tom. I've, I've, I've stayed away from it because my life has been complicated and uh, I haven't, just haven't had the brain power to think about it. But you're an interesting, interesting bunch of guys. And, uh, yeah, I'll be back. And we, we do get a random smattering on, although Bruce is a, is a regular and William is a regular in the chat, and as is Tolkis. We do get an interesting group on, so you're never really sure who might actually be calling in on a Friday night. <laughs> well, I'll be back. I'll, I'll try and say something provocative to wind everybody up. Wonderful. Well, artificial life hasn't done anything in the past decade, I think, is probably going to be the topic <laughs> that you're on next time on Bios Live. Bruce, your thing. <laughs> Bruce, you're going to be travelling in the, in the near future. Do you have any final questions for Steve? Are you are you settled down in in uh, Flagstaff, Steve? Um, I'm I'm settled for the next year, definitely. Uh, I should be around. This is a beautiful place. I love Flagstaff. It's really nice. So yeah, I'll be here for a year. And I'm not all that far from you, I guess. Now, a couple of days drive, and maybe we'll meet oh, up. It'd be lovely to see you. And uh, Reed Reiner at Northern Arizona University is um, in Flagstaff. He's one of the early founders of the Contact Consortium and an anthropologist oh. in a virtual world anthropologist. Oh, sure. I'll look him up. Can you say his name again? Uh, Reed Reiner. <laughs> I'll, I'll, uh, I'll send you a, um, a contact. Oh, great. Thank you. And perhaps you both could meet in Las Vegas sometime ah, in the near really? future. <laughs> it's in the middle. Well, it's not really in the middle for Bruce, but it is if he gets on a jet plane. So... <laughs> Well, I'd like to thank all the, the folks for participating this evening. The chat has been on fire. We've had collaborative projects discussed and sealed and emails sent and a wide variety of things going on in the chat this evening in parallel to our discussions. So I, once again, Steve, I mean, thank you for participating and certainly you, you bring a large posse in terms of those that are interested in your work. So it's wonderful to have you on. You're welcome, Tom. 
And our topic on uh, next Bios Alive, September the 4th, post-singular and post-apocalyptic. Something slightly different than this evening's discussion, but uh, no doubt we'll have an interesting group of callers. Perhaps Steve might call back and uh, put forward the thought that artificial life hasn't done anything in the past 10 years. That would certainly get the uh, conversation post-apocalyptic relatively quickly, I would presume. But anyway, thank you all very much for listening in. Good night. Good night. Good night.